Last week, we saw that God graciously provided the best of the land of Egypt for Israel and his sons to dwell. God in his providence, and I don't know any better word than the word providence in this case, God in his providence ensured that there would be a division between the Egyptians and his people. Now, just to stop and reflect, I don't know any other better word than providence. Can you imagine the workings of God through the thousands of years to establish this situation in which the Egyptians believed that shepherds and those that cared for livestock were an abomination? And God prepared and prepared and prepared and moved in history, <clears throat> subtly here and subtly there, to produce this situation. So I don't know any other better word than providence. It's, is God gently and subtly manipulating, if I can use that word, events to make sure they ended the exact way he needed them to end? Aren't you thankful that God has not stopped? God still in his providence moves in subtle ways in history. We can't begin to understand the decision that we make today and how that's going to affect things 500 years down the road. We have no idea. And yet God works. And God ensured there would be a division between the Egyptians and his people, Israel. Shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. All this... Israel was subjected to with the confident hope that one day God would take them out of Egypt and bring them into the land he promised to Abraham and Isaac. And of course we related that to in a subtle way. Is that not how God has dealt with his people, the church? Here we are in a land that's not ours looking forward to a day where God's going to take us into the land that is ours, and it gives us hope. And it gives us something to work at, if I can use that phrase. Today's reading, taken from Genesis 47, neatly ties up God's transfer in settling his people into Egypt and continues the narrative around the famine and Joseph's role during this time. So what I want to do, just as a parenthesis here is I want to read the first 12 verses of Genesis 47 and I want you if you were here last week to just tie it in your mind to last week's message and it just it just finishes that story beautifully so the first 12 verses of Genesis 47 then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said my father and my brothers their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan and indeed they are in the land of Goshen and he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent man among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, 
How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Take brief note. It is a lonely Bedouin shepherd that blesses the leader of a world empire. Pharaoh doesn't bless Joseph. Joseph blesses Pharaoh. Jacob's long walk with God had given him a humble spiritual power that radiated even into the heart of this Pharaoh. And it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This was not done. This just was not done. But it was done here. But the passage I'd like to to reflect on mostly today is uh, the next several verses, and that's uh, verses 13 through 26. So let's read that, we'll pray, and we'll jump into the story. Genesis chapter 47, beginning in 13. Now, there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people... He moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. 
Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests, only which did not become Pharaoh's. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there's so much in this passage that we could spend time on. There's so many details and and information that we could look at in this passage. It's so rich. And yet, Father, I don't want to waste your people's time by just digging into details. What I'd like to do is touch the points that you would, by your Spirit, enable to penetrate into our hearts this morning, that we might draw nearer to Christ and live a life that's pleasing to the Father by the power of the Spirit. And so I pray this morning, as we look into this passage, that you would help us see the face of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question I'd like to ask you to reflect on. Don't answer out loud. <clears throat> what has Christ asked of you? What has Christ asked of you? I think when we read the first few verses that we read there, uh, 13 through 15, Christ has asked for your money. And by the way, when Christ asks for your money, I'm not saying, boy, I should take my more money and give it to the church. No, that's just, that's just a portion of your money. God has asked for all of your money. Some of it you'll use to buy food, and some of it you use to buy clothing. Some of it you'll use to uh, spend on entertainment. And some of it you'll use to give. Some of it you'll use to bless someone else. All of it is God's money, regardless of what you use it for. So when I say God has asked for your money, I'm not saying you should give more to the church. No, it's all God's money. It's entirely up to you what you choose to give. And we're going to, you might as well turn there now, Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at a principle, I think, that I don't want to uh, be too dogmatic about, but I think we can learn something about our own hearts here in, in Mark chapter 12. And we can learn something about what's important to God in terms of money. So in Mark chapter 12, I just want to reflect on a couple of statements. It's this. It's not about how much you give. I think the question we have to ask is, how much have you kept from God? So it's not about how much you give. It's about how much have you kept from God. So in Mark chapter 12, many of you have turned there. Let's turn there together. Uh, we're going to read verses 41 through 44. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciple to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she, 
out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So, in the eyes of Christ, it's not about how much you give, especially in our abundance, and each of us has abundance. Every person in this room <clears throat> is in the top 0.01% in wealth of all the humans that have ever lived. So it's not about <clears throat> how much you give. It's about how much have you kept back from God. And maybe it's that money you spent on your entertainment. Maybe that's the part you keep back from God. How much have you kept back? By the way, I looked at what's today's equivalent to this widow's two mites that she threw in there. It was a 64th of a denarius. Um, a denarius was approximately one day's wage. So the average person might make, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, the average hardworking man might make $200 a day. I don't want to guess at how much a person makes. Some of you make 100 and some of you make 500 I, Some of you make 1000 I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, but if a person were to make $200 a day, um, the equivalent of what this lady threw in, which was everything she had, was a five spot. She took her last $5 bill down to the lottery store, like we read in the news. No. I'm always amazed. You read these stories of the lottery winners. I only had $5 left, so rather than buy food, I decided to buy a lottery ticket in which I had a one in a hundred million chance to win. Oh, you're a genius. G-U-I-N-S. Hey, Benjamin. But here's this lady. She takes everything she has, her last $5 bill. There's nothing else. How is she going to make it? And she gives it. And do you know what I think Christ sees? I think Christ sees a complete dependence that God's going to provide for that next meal, for the next pair of sandals. She gives what she has to God. What have you kept back? What have you kept back? The other question is, how willingly did you give? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want your money that you have trouble parting with. Keep it. This church doesn't want it. I don't want it. Keep it. If it tears at your heartstrings to put that money into the offering bag, keep it. I don't want it. God has enabled us each to give as we purpose in our heart, not grudgingly, or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. So giving is an opportunity. And if we reflect back on whose money it is anyway, it's all God's. And we cheerfully give it all to God when we buy that rice or ketchup or whatever it is. It's all God's. So if it's grudging and it hurts to give it, keep it. I don't want it. Nor, 
does God. God doesn't need your money. God's pretty rich. He doesn't need your money. What he needs is your cheerful heart. If God has needs, that's what he wants. <laughs> God doesn't have any needs. You can be assured that those that gave to Joseph to receive life, ultimately, to receive food, gave eagerly. You're telling us, Joseph, that if we give you this worthless coin, that you'll give us something that actually will keep us alive? Is that what you're telling me? Joseph's like, yeah, give me your worthless coin that won't do you any good right now. You can starve with your sack full of gold coins. You'll starve to death with it sitting there on your lap. And I'll give you something that you can use that's going to keep you alive. And the people were happy. You mean I can give up this worthless metal for something that'll fill my belly? Yes, Joseph said. I have something that's going to keep you alive. And all you have to give up is your worthless stuff. They were happy to give it up. What else does God want? Your livelihood. Your livelihood. And we see this in chapter 47, verses 16 and 17. The people say, we've given our money. We've given it all. We don't have anything else. And Joseph said, well, what about your animals? Your way of making a living. What about that? You can give that. Each of us, each of us, and I'm not exaggerating, each of us has been blessed with a job. How do I know this? Some, some of them are paying jobs and some of them are unpaying jobs. Some people ask me, hey, uh, do you, when do you have a day off? You mean a day where I don't get paid? You guys all know that, right? Um, many of you work, right? And a day off means you work for free at home like crazy. So that's a day off. <laughs> But anyway, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Some of you have a job where you actually receive some payment in return from your work. Some of you have a job where you receive no payment at all from your work. You receive the benefits of your work, I'm sure. Uh, it might be a clean house or clean clothes or it might be a, a, a shoveled walkway. Whatever it is, we all have a job. Some of us get paid, some of us don't get paid. Sometimes we have a job where we do, and sometimes we have a job where we don't. But all of us have a job. How do I know? Matthew 20. Jesus is telling a, one of his beautiful stories we call a parable. And he says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, What have you been standing here idle? Sorry, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. It seems to me that this parable tells us that God has something for each of us to do. And yet, there's a bunch of folks standing around, and God says, why in the world are you standing there twiddling your thumbs? 
Uh, no one told me what to do. Well, there's work to do. Get at it. There's work to do. There's plenty of work to do. Get at it. I think that's a biblical principle. You find something to do. Each of us has a job. That job will depend on each of us individually. But each of us has something to do. And God wants your livelihood. We also learn, I think, as a biblical principle, and we'll read a couple passages there in your notes there, that the Bible says, whatever your job is, do it well. Ephesians 6. We were visiting a little bit about uh, this yesterday in the kitchen. Yeah, we had a little bit of time to visit. <laughs> we were visiting about these restaurants that have to close one or two days a week, they can't get people to fill the seat, they, to fill the jobs. And other businesses closing down. Take a drive through town and look at the stores that used to be full that have nothing in them anymore. Empty, closed down, no one to rent them, no one to work. <clears throat> that shouldn't be the Christian experience. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5 through 8. Bond servants. That means basically someone who's hired and is told what to do. We, many of us know what that's like. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not unto man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Colossians, parallel passage in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, beginning in 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, sounds familiar, doesn't it? But in sincerity of heart, pleasing God, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. God wants your livelihood. You go to work. You work as unto the Lord. So when you do your job, you do it just well enough not to get fired. Or you work really hard when your boss is watching. And play on your phone when he isn't. Heard of that happening. God says, no, that's not how we as Christians work. He says, whatever you're doing, so you get up in the morning, maybe you have schoolwork to do. Maybe you have your job, maybe you have to get ready to go to your job, and God has said, whatever it is that you're doing, do it 
as service to the Lord Christ. Not just so people can see, but unto God. Now, if this happened, by the way, in today's society, our economy would be transformed overnight. We wouldn't recognize tomorrow morning when we woke up the wealth of this nation. Just from these two passages, we wouldn't be able to recognize it. And those of you that have people that work for you, there's several of you in here that have people work for you. Wouldn't that be such a tremendous blessing if this were true all of the time? Oh, can you imagine what you could accomplish if this was the standard state of those that work for you? We, we can't begin to wrap our minds around how good of advice this is. God's advice. God wants your livelihood. Finally, in verses 18 and 19, God wants your self. How do we give ourself to Jesus? Sometimes we, maybe if you've done what I've done, we've thought in our mind of, here, here God, here it is, and we metaphorically just kind of, here God, here's myself, but it doesn't change anything. We've just given our self to God and, and we think, well, there it is, take it for what it's worth. I think we give ourself to Jesus by following him. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. Jesus is possibly walking down the road and of course, being a popular teacher at this point, people would come and ask him questions. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments, do not, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, and I think, he might have interrupted Christ at this point. Can you imagine? Ah, wait, 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 wait. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. We ought to hire that guy as a pastor. Can you imagine someone that good? I can. All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So let's look at this story briefly. It can be a hard story to understand, but I'm just going to touch on it just very briefly. Jesus asks him, asks him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You don't believe that I'm God and I'll prove it. You tell me, you just told me that you always listen when God tells you to do something. When God tells you to do something, you do it. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother. You tell me that when God says it, you do it. End of story. If you believed that I am Jehovah God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you would do what I tell you. So, here's what I'm telling you. Sell all that you have 
and distribute to the poor, and come and follow me. This man was willing to obey as long as it didn't cost him anything. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We're willing to obey as long as it doesn't cost us anything. For this man, it was his riches. What is it for you that God is asking you to give up and follow him? Do you believe Jesus is Lord? We say that. We want, we want Christ to become someone's Lord and Savior, we say. <clears throat> we say. Well, we understand the Savior part, but wouldn't a Lord get to tell you what to do? Do you believe that he has the authority to tell you what to do? What is he asking you to do? Or to give up? Or to take up? Well, I think we get our answer in Genesis 47. Look what Joseph says to them. He has all that they have now. He's got their money. He's got their livestock. He's got their land. He's got their self. And he says to them, here is seed. Go and sow it. I looked at, I did a little bit of the math here. Joseph knew that the famine was about to end. We're in year six at this final point of the story. We can trace the years through. We're in year six. It's not going to be that long. It's not going to be that long. And there's, the famine's going to come to an end. So Joseph said to him, the famine's coming to an end. Here's seed. Go and sow it. And he summarizes the whole thing. He knows that their money has gone into the seed. Their livelihood has gone into the seed. Their self has gone into the seed. Their land has gone into the seed. Here it is. Go and sow it. Because it's going to be fruitful. I know something you don't know. The famine is coming to an end. Little by little, Joseph was able to acquire everything the Egyptians had, including their very lives. It was a slow and often painful process. The only time that people were willing to give up what was most valuable to them is when there was nothing else left to give. Was Joseph a harsh overseer? Look at the conclusion of the people and find out. What did the people say after Joseph dealt with them this way? You have saved our lives. It was all worth it, Joseph. You have saved our lives. He wasn't a harsh overseer. A few words of encouragement and exhortation. I'm going to read three, four passages of scripture. I won't get you to look them up because it'll take some time. So what I want you to do, though, is engage your minds. Listen really carefully. I'm going to read four passages of scripture and then we'll close. First one, Romans 6, 19 to 23. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, listen to this. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to do it. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
Oh, I'm going to pause there just for a moment. When we look back at our old lives and the things that were valuable to us as unbelievers, whatever it was, could have been drugs or alcoholism or whatever we've been delivered out of, and we were all delivered out of something. And you know what it is. You don't have to search your heart very deep, do you? What was the fruit of that filth? Nothing good. And so Paul is asking these people, look at the fruit of what you enjoyed doing. Just look at where it goes. Is that what you want? For the end of those things, he says, is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next passage of scripture, John 17, 17. We read it last week as well. Jesus praying to the Father says this, sanctify them through thy truth. And then he gives the answer. Thy word is truth. How much time do you spend in God's word? As God sets you apart. None? Hmm. Little? Hmm. Hebrews 10.14 For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that word perfected. It means made complete to accomplish a specific goal. Made complete to accomplish a specific goal. It said God has made you complete to accomplish a specific goal. In the meantime, he's bit by bit setting you apart, sanctifying you. In the final scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God. Sometimes we ask, what's the will of God in my life? Hmm, I don't know. Okay, well, here we have 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. I'll just give you the answer straight out. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let's pray.